so um, this will just be a little different. I did actually print out my notes this morning. Thank the Lord, because it's a little weird to see over the computer on my lap. Um, but we need to pray. I hope this all works well for everybody. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace. Your grace that is greater than all our sin. Your, your grace and your love that was poured out through Jesus Christ. Where we look to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you love us, that you have forgiven us, that you have made us new creations, that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that we are seated in the heavenly places with him. That is just amazing. And Father, my mind is small, and I do such a bad job of carrying those glorious truths into my day and into my life and into my thinking and into the roles you've given me. But your word is powerful, Lord. You say that it's sharper than a double-edged sword. And we plead with you to use your word to reach our hearts and our minds, to help us better understand your purposes for us, even in the things that seem small, so that you do receive glory and that we do participate in displaying your image to the lost world. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) Okay. nice to be with you guys again. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So go ahead and grab your notebook if you don't already have that out. Now, back when I was working, before I was home with kids, um, it was really kind of the in thing for organizations to have a mission statement. And the idea there was that you needed to know why you existed, what your purpose was. And personally, I didn't really like it. I didn't like having to be pushed to think through and understand the big picture. I was just pretty content just to do my little job. Just let me do my little piece of it, and and I'm fine. But I've come to realize that a problem with that is that if we don't understand the big picture, we can um, become so focused on just our little job that we don't really care how well anybody else does their job. And we can be... um, self-centered, we can become territorial, and think that somehow that little job is an end all by itself. Ultimately, the whole organization is less effective and and less productive um, rather than everybody working together to a bigger purpose. And our wellspring purpose is really helpful for the same reason. So go ahead and look at your notebook. Let's just read it together. All together now, to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Now, what might it look like if I were to take a small view of my purpose in the body of Christ? Well, perhaps I could take something like Discipline One, and I might only see the value that it has for me personally. Go ahead and look at Discipline 1 on your notebook there. It says, She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the Word of God, and in particular, the Gospel. Now, you know that I believe in Discipline 1. And Chris and Jamie believe in Discipline 1. Our elders believe in Discipline 1. We all need Discipline 1 every single day. Um, And it's because in Christ, we've experienced a new birth. We have new hearts. And so 1 Peter 2.2 says, Like newborn babies... 
long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, how does a newborn long for milk? Often, right? He's not going to be very long until she wants to eat again. (laughs) And you can be sure that when a baby is longing for that milk, he's going to make sure everybody else knows what he wants too, right? He's not going to be very satisfied for very long with any substitutes. When he wants milk, that's all he's going to take. And that's why we make a big deal in Wellspring that we're not just checking off a box in our reading plan. See, that's not longing for the pure milk of the word. Longing for pure milk, the pure milk of the word, means that we come to the word and we plead with God to meet us, meet us there. And we plead with him to not let us be satisfied with anything less than meeting with him there. And we ask him to remind us afresh of his greatness and to help us see our own sinfulness so that we'll love him more and sin less. And we plead with him to help us understand better the gospel. And when we're not longing, then we cry out to God for a heart that does long for the word. And we read it anyway because we know that the word is that sharp sword. It's like that sharp sword that can cut in through that hardness and that dullness and that foolish self-sufficiency to create a longing that we don't have. See, the more we take in the word, the more we will long for it. But as great as that is, and as fruitful as that can be, think how small discipline one is if we take it away from the bigger purpose of wellspring. See, each of us meeting with God and his word is good, it's important, it's valuable, but it will be very limited if we only are focused on what it does for us. So the wellspring purpose reminds us why we shepherd our hearts to meet with God in his word. It says so that we live out the gospel. And the most important and the first place and the place we never quit living that out is in our home and with our family. And so that's discipline too. It says she ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. And when I think of this discipline, um, what comes to mind first, ever since we did the lesson on Proverbs 14.1, are two of the qualities of the wise woman who builds her house. And two of those in particular were that she was industrious and that she was peaceable or uncontentious. And so industriousness helps us understand how to live out the gospel in what we do. Are we diligent and self-disciplined? Do we serve those around us? Are we faithful with our responsibilities in our home? And this isn't just for the oldest woman in the home. It's not just for the mom, right? You have roommates, and that role still applies, doesn't it? And if we have little ones at home, we need to be training them in that stewardship of the home that God has provided for them to live in. Wherever we live, we are called to be a worker there. And then the second quality, being peaceable or uncontentious, speaks primarily to how we shepherd the relationships where we live, in our home, with our family. So are we gentle? Are we patient? Do our lives reflect that we are being transformed by the gospel? Do our words reflect that the gospel is the greatest treasure that we have to offer anyone, anytime? You know, when that is not the case, 
that is the Lord showing us in his kindness uh, yet another area where we have to grow, where we can trust him more. So shepherding our hearts so that we can minister to those in our households is good. It's important. But again, that fruit will be far too small if we pursue it apart from our bigger purpose. And so what is the greater purpose behind Discipline 1 and Discipline 2? Well, Discipline 3 says, with a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. The Wellspring purpose says this strengthens the church in its gospel purpose. Now remember last week we saw that in John 17, as we live in unity with one another, displaying the self-giving love of God with the body of Christ, it shows the world something of who our Savior is. You know what? I can give her this cherry here. No, it's good. I'm glad you're here. God loves to use his church to display himself, to draw people to himself, to send people out to proclaim the gospel and to plant more churches which will display something of himself to those who are lost. So that's how the Wellspring Purpose can spur us on in the discipline so that we are fully participating in what God's plan is to bring glory to himself to the church. So that brings us to our lesson. We have the same outline as we did last week. I have one. Does anybody need one? Anybody need that one? Yeah. There you go. So we'll just be starting right here this week. Okay. So we have the same outline, and you can see on your outline there, just to review what we covered last week, that man was created to bear God's image, that sin corrupted our ability to do that. Um, and then Jesus came, and he, per- per- he was the image of God. He perfectly shows us God's image of seamless unity submitted with self-giving love. And then through the gospel, we saw that we are restored to being God's image bearers. So therefore... The greatest relationship we have is the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. And then, after we covered all that, we went on to examine what it means then to bear God's image in seasons of singleness. And so that brings us to number six on our outline. Um, And it bears saying again, whether we're single or we're married, we need to understand God's design for displaying His image in marriage. Not just for someday when we might be married, but right now our unity as the body of Christ is strengthened when we all esteem marriage the way God does. When we encourage our married friends to value their marriage and to think about their marriage biblically and to persevere in marriage for the sake of displaying God's image in that marriage. And so our thinking also about entering marriage, whether for ourselves, our friends, our children, that our reasons for marriage are looking to fulfill God's purposes for marriage. So marriage presents yet another stage for displaying the image of God. So we're going to start back in Genesis again, and we're going to take a look at what God 
God's word says about bearing his image in marriage. Now last week we took a look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and we saw that God created man in his image, male and female. But to understand how marriage ties into that, we need to take a look at Genesis chapter 2. Now Genesis chapter 2, if you were um, at church last summer when Smedley taught on this, you'll remember that Genesis 2 is not a different account of creation. Rather, Genesis 1 gives us a general account of how everything was created in six days. And then beginning in Genesis 2, verse 4, we're looking back at that and seeing greater detail. And specifically, we learn more detail about how the man and the woman came to be. And we see what God's heart was in bringing the woman to the man. So remember, this is before the fall, and that's significant. Um, God has continued to unfold his redemptive plan, and we saw last week that in Christ, we are his image bearers. We've already been restored to that ability to bear his image through our relationship with Christ and through our relationships with the body of Christ. But we want to understand God's original design for marriage, so we're going to go back and look at Genesis 2, verse 18. And so it reads, Then the Lord God said, It is not good. Now, if you remember from Genesis 1, every time God created, he pronounced that it was good. And this is still before the fall. So what could possibly not be good? Well, we read that it's not good for the man to be alone. He needs a helper suitable to him. And what does he need help with? Well, he needs help to fulfill the purpose that God's given him. Adam needs help radiating the seamless unity and self-giving love of the Godhead. In other words, we're just not going to see the image of God as clearly in Adam unless there's someone else. So before the fall, God's image required a man and a woman to express it. So God created Eve. Now watch how God provided a helper for Adam in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. So the woman didn't come from the ground. She didn't come from someplace else. She came right out of the very side of Adam. Now, why would that be significant? Why would God take a piece out of the man himself and then go form it into a woman, and then bring her right back to his side. Well, the purpose that God had in mind in that was unity. See, it's important for the world to see that when two people are married, that they are united, that they do reflect the seamless unity of the Godhead. Marriage surpasses anything that the animals could offer Adam in image-bearing. There was no unity between Adam and the animals. There's divergence. There's dissimilarity. But the the woman is suitable to display unity with the man because she came right out of his own body. (coughs) So God created this bride for Adam, and together these two people were able to express the seamless unity of the Godhead that is cemented in self-giving love. But, like we saw last week, and like we saw the week before, In Genesis 3, sin changed everything, and the image of God was all but obliterated in man. But then Jesus came, and he is the image of God. And there's a parallel here between Adam 
and Jesus. God created Adam, who bore the image of God. 1 Corinthians 15.45 tells us that Jesus is called the last Adam. And he is the image of God. He's everything that Adam was supposed to be, but failed to be. Now remember, God gave Adam Eve to help him display the image. He gave Adam a bride. And so what did God do for Jesus to help his image get everywhere that it needed to go? He gave Jesus a bride as well. It's the church. And that's why I just get goosebumps. And it's just really exciting to see such a bigger plan for the body of Christ. Revelation 21.9 talks about the bride of the Lamb, and that is us. We need to understand this because this is God's big idea of what he's doing in the world. He wants his self-giving image and the unity of who he is to be displayed in the earth. We saw that, again, I mentioned it before, but we saw that in John 17 last week. It's just such a beautiful picture of Christ's heart for his body to display who he is. So first, Adam was created in God's image, and he was given a bride, Eve, to help him display that image. That failed in sin, so Jesus, who's God's son, the second Adam, who is the image of God, came, and God gave him a bride, the church, to help him display his image everywhere. So this relationship between Jesus and his bride is to reflect something of the seamless unity of God. Jesus with his people, the way he relates to us and the way we relate to him, displays the image of God. And that is what Paul has on his mind when we get to Ephesians 5. So I think that's on your outline, Ephesians 5. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible with me. Paul uses this relationship between Christ and the church to assign a very unique privilege to marriage. And it's important just to understand, none of us are in perfect marriages. Marriage can be really hard, right? Just like it can be hard to not be married. Life is just hard sometimes. But there's a much bigger message that we need to understand. Um, so go ahead and read with me and listen for how Paul refers to the church or the body in the midst of all this teaching about marriage. So we're going to read beginning in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. He just can't quit coming back to this idea of the church as he talks about marriage. And he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. But he's just captivated with Christ and his church. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own life loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. See, the mystery isn't the husband and the wife. The mystery is Christ and the church. That is a mysterious unity. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So Paul's dealing with marriage, and we find that the whole point in dealing with marriage is to highlight the church's relationship with Jesus. Eight times in 12 verses, Paul, uh, 12 verses on marriage, Paul is talking about the church. He wants to show how there's just this incredible relationship between the bride and her husband, Jesus. Marriage is about displaying the way that God relates to his people and his people relate to him. And that is to be unfolded in our marriages if we are married and we love Christ. Or if God brings us a husband someday, that's what God wants to unfold to the world through our marriages. Marriage is so much bigger than we tend to think it is. We can get so caught up in thinking that it's about me and it's about him and it's about life together or companionship or security or being understood. And, you know, all those things are true to some degree. But we need to understand that God just has so much more in mind than our happiness. He's linked marriage to declaring his greatness. As believers, our marriage is a subset of what God wants to display about himself. Marriage carries with it the incredible privilege and responsibility of showcasing the relationship that Christ has with his church. So what does that mean for our life? Whether we are one now, or we hope to be one day, or we're encouraging other women in their marriages, what role does a wife play in marriage? What role does she play in displaying the image of God? Well, Scott Maxwell summarized it this way when he taught on this a while back. He said, seamless relationships require simple roles. In Ephesians 5.22, we read, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And we're going to come back and dig into that a bit more in a minute. But Scott made this point, and I really like it, and I think it would be easy to miss, and that actually this is really encouraging. It's just be subject to your own husbands. Because we could go to a Christian bookstore and go to the marriage section, and we could find dozens of books, and we could find list after list after list of all the things we've got to remember to make sure we're working on a good marriage. And Paul just makes it so simple. He says, wives, here it is. It's one thing. And this is everything. Submit to your husband. Now, I hope that we understand that Scripture never tells us to submit if our husband is asking us to sin. But even that would need to be handled in a respectful attitude. And we're going to elaborate more on submission when we get to the lesson in Titus. But Scripture's clear. We do need to submit to our husbands to give our lives in service. It's not easy to do all the time, but it's clear in the sense that there's not 20 things. It's one thing. And that one thing is to submit to our husbands because we have the honor and the high calling of selflessly portraying the submissive church. It's selfless.
helpless because that's the image of God in Christ. He was a servant. He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give himself away. That's what service is. It's giving ourselves away. Jesus gave himself away. And wise, we get to selflessly give ourselves away in submission. We portray the submissive truth. So, let's go back to Ephesians 5.22 now and just try to understand a little bit more about what that's saying. Now again, you'll see it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. And at least in the NASB, you'll see that the verb, the be subject part, is in italic. That means it was added by the translators for clarity. But in Greek, the verb actually is back in verse 21. But Paul's thought actually backs up even farther than that in verse 18. So let's read Ephesians 5.18 together. He writes, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the command, be filled with the Spirit. So then everything that flows from this verse, in verses 19, 20, 21, and continuing into 22, is amplifying and describing what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. So when we get down to verse 22, Paul is just continuing to explain what that looks like. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of God? And we see that fullness of spirit means submissiveness to our husbands. See, when we're full of the Spirit, the last thing we want to do is to lift ourselves up and say, you come serve me. You need to be concerned about my needs. Jesus didn't come to be served. And when we, and as we are in him and as his Spirit fills us, we find ourselves being like him, getting low and putting that towel around ourselves and washing one another's feet and doing all those things that nobody ever knows that you do and that nobody will ever thank you for. But you're doing it out of love for Jesus. Now let's take one last look at 22. This time we'll take a look at how it ends. It says, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. So as we talk about submissiveness to our husbands, um, it's important to notice that Paul immediately takes this horizontal relationship and relates it right back to the vertical relationship that we have with God. He's saying the submissiveness that we have this way needs to be something like our submissiveness this way with the Lord. Um, And the reason is that because the husband is the head of the wife, just like Christ is the head of the church. The head is the one who sends the signals to the body, and the body responds when everything is going the way that it's designed. Now, verse 24 says, But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, can you imagine the church saying, Oh, that's what Jesus' will is? Well, I think I have another plan. See, that would be horrible. We wouldn't want a church that responds that way to Jesus. We wouldn't want to be in that kind of place at all. And in the same way, we as wives shouldn't want, shouldn't be content to live that way towards our husband at all, to think that way towards our husband. Now remember what we learned back in the book of Luther. The world would say, this is an offensive, backward, degrading message. But as believers, we need to see that it is a beautiful The world needs to see women who have been so radically transformed by the gospel that they say, I set aside my will. I'm not going to pursue what I want because now I want what Jesus wants. The world needs to see a church, God's family, saying, I submit to Jesus. 
And that's what happens when we're in Christ. We change, and we want to bow our knees, and we want to be his slaves. And why do we get to reflect that? By submitting to our husbands. The way Jesus relates to his church is a beautiful picture. And that's what we get to put on display to the world. This is really incredible. I was talking to Jamie. I just want this to soak into those moments when I'm tempted to have a grumbling heart about washing dishes or planning another meal or whatever it is. Because in that moment, if I have this truth in front of me, it just really will change everything. It gives it a purpose and and a, a, a holiness. This is an act of reverence towards God when we do it unto Him. Now I want you to turn over though to First. I'm sorry, First Peter. Chapter 3. Because you might hear all this about the beauty of marriage and the beauty of submission, and you might be inclined to think, either maybe in your own marriage or another marriage that you know of, that you know what, that, that's great, but you don't know my husband or your husband. You know, he, he just he doesn't understand God's purpose for marriage. He doesn't love me like Christ loves the church. Maybe it's a husband who is a habitual sin. Maybe the husband is not a believer. So what then? The world would say, this has got to be a two-way street, 50-50, right? But see, that's not what God said. So let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, it starts off by saying, in the same way. And that refers back to chapter 2, verse 18, about slaves being submissive to the master. So whether whether the, the masters are good and gentle, or whether they're unreasonable. So right from the beginning, we can see that submission is not dependent upon the worthiness of the one in authority. So it continues, verse 1, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So now wives are commanded specifically to submit to disobedient husbands. And why are they told to do that? Because they might be won. That's a powerful, <coughs> image-bearing submission that God enables us to bear. It may be his tool for actually winning the disobedient husband. And then it tells us how, without a word, by the behavior of their wives. Now verses 2 through 4 describe that behavior for us, that God may use to win a husband. He says, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. See, submission is displayed through behavior that is chaste and reverent. Now, chaste means pure and holy. And respectful or reverent here and in Ephesians 5.33 is a reverent fear that draws you near to your husband that leads you into this humble, thankful appreciation of who he is because of the role that God has placed him in over you. You fear your husband out of reverence for Christ, and you can utterly and absolutely trust Christ. 
Christ, that he is the one who is at work to lead you as you submit to and respect your husband. And what did we see in that verse is the source of that kind of behavior. Verse 4 said that it flows from the hidden person of the heart. See, it's not just acting submissive. It's a hard attitude. Now, I hope that sounds familiar, because this is just another look at how discipline one enables us to live out discipline two. How else will we ever possess a quiet and gentle spirit? It's just not going to happen, is it? We have to shepherd our hearts to Jesus Christ through God's word. Now, this passage is just so helpful because it points us right back to this greatest relationship with Jesus Christ that we must not neglect. And it underscores our call to submission, not only when our husband is walking with the Lord, but every bit as much when our husband is disobedient to the word. Submission is non-negotiable. It is the way that God has given for a wife to display God's image in marriage. And it's so encouraging. This can be God's tool for winning the disobedient husband. Again, If we find tension in hearing this, we've got to ask ourselves, where does that tension come from? It doesn't come from Jesus. It doesn't come from God's word. See, it comes from a culture and a society that left God behind a long time ago. This is a culture. We live in a culture. Jamie talked about this with us. A culture that doesn't want anybody to submit to anyone. And if we let ourselves be bombarded by that message, and if we're not soaking ourselves in the word consistently, then we will struggle. We must shepherd our hearts into the presence of God through his word to get his message for us so that we can stand firm against this message that the godless culture gives. See, we need to turn off those competing voices and we need to open up this book and soak ourselves in this message and live out the truths that are here. Bombard our, our thinking with what we find here in God's word so that when we go into the world, we can turn the tables and say, you know what, that is a godless message. I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to buy into that. I'm not going to just blindly follow along with that. We need to just throw off that the world's thinking um, so that this no longer sounds odd or old-fashioned or archaic. It needs to sound right because it is right. It doesn't go out of date. It reflects who our God is and how we relate to him. Submission is a powerful and unifying, self-giving display of God's image to a lost, God-hating world. Now you have a couple other passages there in your notes. Those first couple from 2 Timothy and Acts are just really encouraging as you see how God used the faithfulness of a mother and a grandmother to prepare Timothy for ministry, even when his father was an unbeliever. And, of course, you see Titus 2 there as well. We'll talk about that next time. But let's take a minute and talk about the implications of God's design for displaying his image in marriage. Now, you have a new handout for today, and I included on that the implications we covered um, for seasons of singleness, as well as what we're going to cover right now in marriage. I've got 
that we live with as we serve them. And we do these humble acts of service for one another because as we live that way, it makes God more and displays his image, his unity, and his love. Well, number five, for those who are not currently married, God's design excludes marrying or otherwise entering into a close relationship with a man who is not in Christ or to whom she would be unwilling to biblically submit. See, when you see God's design, this just makes perfect sense. Why would we unite ourselves with one who rejects God's design to display his self-giving image? If the highest purpose for marrying is so that a husband and wife together can be united and can sacrifice themselves in such a way that it displays Christ and the church, then uniting ourselves to a self-grasper defeats that purpose. It would obscure the image of God. And the wife's role in that image-bearing is to (coughs) submit. So a Christian woman must not enter into that kind of serious relationship with a man to whom she would not submit. Because that would not display God's image. Now, on the other hand, if you are married to a man who's not a follower of Jesus Christ, God's will is for you to display Christ to him and to your children as you serve them and as you treasure them in a way that flows out of what the gospel is doing in you. See, this is just God's kindness to your family to place a living testimony to his redeeming work right there in front of them as you serve them. See, this is true to some extent for anyone living with those who don't believe. You get to joyfully follow Christ and glorify him by loving them. And the world also gets to see the image of Christ in you as you do that. See, because this is just so like our Savior. He loved us while we were still lost, right? And so we get to love those who are still lost with that love with which Christ has loved us. And so do that. Love the people in your home. Love the people in your family with that same love with which Christ has loved you. Well, number six says it restricts consideration of divorce to only those cases where it's biblically permissible. And even at that, it's only a last resort after one has exhaustively and earnestly sought restoration. There is probably not one of us who has not been directly or indirectly impacted by divorce. But if we understand God's purpose for marriage, it will keep us from basing our opinion about divorce on circumstances personalities or our experiences and it drives us to treasure marriage as something which God designed to display something very special about himself. We need to treasure marriage because God treasures marriage. Divorce is one of the most hostile statements we can make against God himself because it says this picture of marriage, this picture that marriage reflects of God is something I'm willing to destroy. 
believers who have God's purpose in marriage will work until the end to save marriages. They will fight for marriage. To say it differently, we work throughout all our marriage to save a marriage as God does. To recommit ourselves frequently to God's exalted purpose for marriage. Because then marriage has a purpose beyond ourselves. So, what about divorce in our past? Our parents, maybe. Our spouse, maybe ourselves. Now, I really want you to listen carefully to this. Divorce is not a sin that is bigger than the gospel. It's not. It's not bigger than the gospel. Now, knowing how much God values marriage will give us a reason to grieve over divorce. But first and most, we look at it in light of the cross. Whether it's your divorce or someone else's divorce, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate a divorced believer from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate a believing child or parent or sister or daughter who is impacted by divorce from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We have to remember the grace realities. What is true because of the cross? God's wrath has been poured out on Jesus Christ for all of the sin of all who believe. There is not a drop left. There are consequences for divorce. Just like there are consequences for any sin, right? Whether we sinned or whether we were sinned against. But as believers, we can rest and we can be confident that our loving God compels even those consequences to work for our good. And somehow it seems like somehow in divorce, sometimes that's the hardest place to believe that. But it's just as true. Okay, well that brings us to discipline three. Let's take a look at the implications of God's design and ministry. Number seven, God's design underscores the importance of relationships with the body of Christ and fellowship, service, and other expressions of the New Testament one another's. In particular, it keeps small group involvement a priority. And that is word for word from what we saw last time with living out God's image in seasons of singleness. Because it's just as true, right? We're just as much a part of the body of Christ. Um, I hope that what you've seen here is that understanding God's purpose for marriage, displaying God's image in marriage, strengthens the church. It's good for the church. It helps the church better display the fullness of Christ. But it's also true that marriage can be hard. And that men and women in marriages need their brothers and sisters in Christ in the, in the body to keep reminding them of that purpose in marriage. Of why there's something bigger than themselves that they're living for. Why it's important to stay committed and continue to pursue displaying the image of God in that marriage. And so marriages need the church, and the church need marriages. It, we're all part of the body of Christ, and it's a good design that God has for us in placing us together in this body. Final number eight, 
God's design elevates the purpose and reason for marriage that others might see a living picture of our great self-giving God. People have all kinds of reasons for getting married. And when I got married, mine weren't particularly lofty. You know, they weren't high and noble. I didn't understand God's purpose for marriage. You know, we can look for security. We can look for that compatibility. We don't want to be lonely. And those are desirable things. But they have to be in subjection to the greater purpose and reason for marriage, or they're going to fall short. Believers aren't to get married just because we're lonely, because we don't want to be alone, because we don't want to burn with passion. We get married because together we get this incredible privilege of reflecting our, in our relationship the unity and selfless love of Godhead. See, that is God's design for marriage, that others get to see a living picture of our great self-giving God. So we began this morning as we looked at the discipline, seeing that our smaller, and I say smaller in quotations, not unimportant, but smaller roles and responsibilities, that we can see that they have so much more value and that they can be much more fruitful when we see them in light of a bigger purpose and a bigger design. And over the last two weeks, Two weeks ago, you guys had the Biblical Womanhood lesson. We've taken a good look at what God's Word says about His design and His purpose for us as women. And His design for us to live as women in the body of Christ together in seasons of singleness and in seasons seasons of marriage. And our hope in all of that is for us to be spurred on in faithfulness in all those smaller tasks. Cultivating a quiet and gentle spirit, serving diligently and cheerfully, submitting graciously, because now we better understand the place that our obedience has in God's bigger purpose of revealing himself to the world. And who doesn't want to be a part of that? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is just a joy to be able to go to your word again and be reminded again that you would have a purpose for us. Any purpose at all should blow us away, but such a high purpose of displaying something of who you are is almost almost beyond our grasp. Oh Lord, help us to grasp. Help us to be enlivened and encouraged and spurred on and motivated to diligently shepherd our own hearts and to live out the gospel in our homes and to build up others in the body so that we are participating as fully as we possibly can in displaying your image of seamless unity and self-giving love to the world. God, you are so good. Lord, I pray for our discussion times. Please just lead those discussions. Let them be times where we are loved well by one another, where we are encouraged and where each one feels comfortable just being transparent with where she is, and that it would be a time where each one is equipped better for the, the roles you have for the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.